0: Uh, this morning, uh, I want to start off by pulling up a slide on the big screen. And one of the things we've been thinking about is, you know, I had this, uh, was listening to this one pastor from Maryland, and he was talking about um, what are some of the stereotypes about churches. And so uh, he actually is the youth pastor at his church in Maryland, and asked uh, the youth there, uh, what are some of the common stereotypes that you know about church? What are some of your friends? Um, what have your friends said about? Um, Christians and church, and of course, uh, they came up with some good stereotypes. Number one, that uh, churches—the sermon and the service—are way too long. Uh, And uh, being a Christian, number two, Christians are being a Christian is boring because you don't get to cuss, no drinking, no fun. Uh, Number three, which was surprising, this was more from their friends that actually visited the churches, was that uh, the pastors think they're funnier than they are. I don't understand. And on a more serious note, uh, they talked about things that maybe you and I have also thought about, that uh, churches are too judgmental, uh, that uh, maybe they just want your money. That was one of the stereotypes that they saw, Uh, that uh, churches can be backwards or ignorant about science. And then the number one thing that, uh, that a lot of these young people, both middle schoolers and high schoolers, said that were stereotypes of the church was that churches are full of hypocrites, people who say one thing but live another. And even though, uh, you know, it's just one church, one youth group, um, with their perception from their friends, I would argue that this is perhaps often a microcosm of how society sees the church. And so uh, I want us to be thinking about, well, well, who would want that as their identity or as their community to be known for that? And as we wrap up, today is the season finale of our uh, year-long series in the book of First uh, Corinthians, Paul is going to continue to confront and challenge the Corinthians and us. What are you called to be? What are you going to be known for as a church? What kind of church will you be? So I want us to be thinking about that this morning as you turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 16. We are wrapping up this series called Clear where we're learning in a world that is confusing and conflictual to see our lives clearly through the countercultural lens of the gospel, the good news about Jesus. And the the Apostle Paul, he writes to a, a church not very different than ours, to this kind of hip urban church in the city of Corinth that has one foot in Christ and one foot in the culture. And he's writing that to them to remind them, instead of being blinded by the values of this world, to see clearly through your identity in Jesus. That as you are loved, as you are forgiven, as you are transformed through the cross, that Jesus grows us in holiness and unity together that is distinct from the world around us. That there's something wrong with Christianity when we don't look any different than the world around us. And he shows us how to practically apply that in areas of decision-making when it comes to sin and conflicts and sex and relationships and controversies and ministries and the future. That's a summary of chapters one through 15. And so today as Paul closes out this letter, these aren't just throwaway remarks. I want you to be able to see that in light of all that Paul has written about Jesus and the gospel, he's challenging them and us, are you clear about what kind of church you're going to be. So let's pick up in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 13. Now I urge you, brothers, you know that the household... Wait, I'm, I'm <laughs> a couple of verses off. Verse 13, be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong, and let all that you do be done in love. And so here we are, Paul is wrapping up with these the set of five final instructions first. And he starts in verse 13 by telling the Corinthian church, be watchful as a church. In other words, in a world where there are countless, confusing and conflicting opinions and options to be alert, to be on guard against corrosive influences that will lead you away from Jesus into distractions and destruction in every area of life and even in every area of church life. And that we not only need to be aware of the dangers around us and the temptations around us, we also need to be aware of the answer. That instead of compromising with ungodly influences, he says, secondly, to stand firm in the faith. And the picture there is somebody who's planting their feet and their faith firmly in something. That we're planting our plans and our priorities and our practices in the truth from Jesus and the truth about Jesus. Thirdly, he tells the church to act like men. And now, as you read this from our 21st century eyes, I want you to hear this clearly. This isn't a call to toxic masculinity, but a call to maturity, to not be childish in your faith. Think about when Paul says earlier in chapter 13, verse 11, when I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. But when I became a man... In other words, when I became mature, when I grew up in my faith, I gave up childish ways. And so the point there is not to beat your chest and say, I'm going to be a man, but what does it look like for us to grow in maturity? That we don't just want to know a little truth, but we don't want to just stop at a little knowing, but we need to continue growing in Christ and in his truth, in maturity, And that as we mature in Christ, in his word, in his will, in his ways, the fourth thing he says is that we're called to be strong. And what that means is not just knowing the truth, but do you have the courage to live out what you know to be true? Even if there's a cost. Even if it requires service or sacrifice or suffering for the sake of Jesus and his family. And so to wrap up these first four instructions from Paul, he's telling the church to be vigilant about knowing and growing and living out the truth of Christ. But there's a balance to that. His final instruction in verse 14 is, as you are doing life and ministry together as a church, make sure to do all these three things through the love of Christ for one another, which is what he talked about throughout chapter 13 this picture that it's not enough to know the truth of Christ because when we do know the truth we can become judgmental condescending and cruel with others weaponizing truth towards other people which is exactly what the corinthians were doing to one another that we also need to remember that we're covered things And what we do with each other, how we interact with each other with the grace of Christ expressed in kindness, in patience, in care and compassion and concern for each other. And so the big idea of this whole passage this morning is that instead of having eyes and our lives blurred by the values of this world, to be clear about vigilantly living out the truth of Christ through the love of Christ together as a church. Because the truth is that we are humbled as sinful, selfish people deserving condemnation for our rebellion against the Holy God. But the grace is that we're grateful that Jesus has paid our debt to forgive us, to give us what we need instead of what we deserve, his forgiveness, his acceptance, his kindness, his righteousness, his family, and his future forever. So as a church, we want to reflect both those things together because that is the gospel. And so I want to start off this morning by asking, you, and for you to think about, are you the type of person that leans more heavily towards the truth of Christ when you interact with others, or the love of Christ towards others? And I'll give you a picture. You see, a lot of times, there's a temptation as a Christian to be either a spiritual legalist on one end of the extreme, or a spiritual liberal person. And I don't mean this in a political way. So the spiritual legalistic person says, well... I want to correct you, but I don't want to hang out with you necessarily because I don't want to be corrupted or frustrated by your flaws and failure. And so you never show the love of God to people. You're just that person who is high on the truth and doctrine and making sure that people know it and say and do the right thing without expressing much of the love of God. And then on the other side is the person who's the spiritually liberal type person who says, you know what, I want to have fun with you, I want to hang out with you, I want to comfort you, but I don't want to say anything about sin or Jesus because that's offensive. And so they never speak the truth of God. And neither of those extremes lift up Jesus or his church. So what are we to do? Paul tells us way back in chapter 11, verse 1, you see how I, Paul, imitate Christ? Do that! We see that Jesus hung out with men who drank, but he himself never got drunk. He would hang out with women who were sexually acting out, but he never took advantage of them. He worked a job for, 30, for many years before he started his ministry, but he never was greedy or took, took advantage or ripped off other people. In other words, when we look at Jesus, he loved people, but he didn't sin, he didn't lie, he didn't avoid, he didn't compromise the truth. And like him, because we are transformed and empowered by him, we can follow his example to be honest about his truth and also generous with his love towards each other. So that through the support, accountability, and encouragement as a church, we help one another to fall in love with Jesus and follow Jesus all the more. So, what is that going to look like as a church? Paul's going to give us two last closing remarks that kind of give an example of how that might be lived out in the church. Let's look at verse 15. Now, I urge you, brothers, you know that the household of Stephanas were the first converts in Achaia, and that they have devoted themselves to the service of the saints. Be subject to such as these and to every fellow worker and laborer. I rejoice at the coming of Stephanas and Fortunatus and Achaicus, because they have made up for your, the Corinthians, absence, for they refreshed my spirit as well as yours. Give recognition to such men. So, we're reintroduced to our good friend Stephanus. Do you remember him? No, you don't remember him. We met him only one time, way back in chapter 1, verse 16. This is the man who his, his family was baptized by Paul as he was starting the church in Corinth. And so here we see in verse 15 that their family, they were the first in this region to come to believe and receive Jesus. Now they've devoted themselves to serving the church as the pastor, as the leaders of the church. That means that they're teaching the gospel and the Bible, that they are praying for people, caring for people, shepherding people, loving people, discipling people, equipping people to know Jesus, and that they're setting a humble example of their faith through their life and family. Verse 16, Paul says, be subject to them. Honor their authority. And not just theirs, all those who minister the gospel at your church in Corinth. And so he's instructing them, you need to honor their spiritual sacrifice, their spiritual service, their spiritual authority over us because of their calling, their gifting, their ministering of the gospel to us through Jesus. And what I want you to see here is not just because they teach the truth of christ that's not the reason why paul is holding them in high esteem not just because of the truth of christ in verse 17 and 18 while the corinthians were rejecting and forgetting paul in their spiritual pride pastor steph and his company they were reaching out to paul in spiritual love they sacrificially traveled they came to paul traveling 180 miles between corinth and Ephesus, that's about eight days by sea, simply to encourage Paul to pour out the refreshing love of Christ, it says, on him as much as he does on them, on the Corinthians. And so Paul says, recognize them, encourage them, appreciate these leaders who are living out the love of Christ and pouring out the love of Christ on each other, on other people. And some of you may remember i quoted this uh this poll a couple months ago but in 2022 there was a study that was done about the top five reasons that pastors have been quitting ministry uh, from the beginning of the pandemic number one was stress and burnout they're just overwhelmed by the work of the ministry number two family struggles number three financial struggles unable to keep up with the costs of life number four Current political divisions were just tiring pastors out. They just got tired of listening to people worship their politics more than Jesus. But number five is where I want to land today. Number five, and I've personally, uh, as somebody who has met with and also mentored a few pa- pastors locally, there's been an alarming number of heartbreaking stories of godly shepherds who love Jesus, love his church, and they quit ministry because they've been feeling too isolated and too alone in their ministry, so isolation and loneliness, that they felt that, you know, I've heard heartbreaking stories of men and women who say, I'm only approached by people at church to be criticized when I get it wrong, never to be recognized when I get it right, and so an alarming rate of men and women in ministry have stepped away from serving the Lord. And so I want to encourage you, what I see from Paul this morning is one way we live out the truth and the love of Christ together as, as a church is by honoring spiritual leaders who minister the truth of Christ and the love of Christ in the church. Because we value that. We want to honor that part. That is an exemplary uh, of the gospel to us. And I don't want to just talk about it. Like Paul, we want to do that right now. And so I want to you, if you are somebody who ministers uh, the truth of Christ and the love of Christ as a volunteer to children in some kind of children's ministry, to stand up. I'm talking about Friday night shining stars. I'm talking about Sunday school at The Rock. I'm talking about nursery workers. If you are a volunteer in children's ministry who ministers the truth and love of Christ, stand up. If you are somebody who ministers the truth and love of Christ into youth, to middle schoolers and high schoolers, whether Friday night Footprints Youth Group, Sunday CE Ministry, I want you to stand up. I want you to stand up. Elijah, I'm looking right at you. I can see you. You are my ex-deacon, and I can see you. I'm wearing my glasses. If you, continue standing. If you minister the gospel by leading a growth group, a fellowship, or leading worship, I want you to stand up, because you are a minister of the gospel. Stand up if you quietly and sacrificially love and serve us as an example of the love and truth of Christ as a greeter or in our sound booth, I want you to stand up. I want you to stand up. We're going to recognize you this morning, and we, we appreciate you. These are just some of the men and women who bless us as servant leaders with the truth of Christ and the love of Christ. Would you encourage them this morning? I want to appreciate you and recognize all of you who are examples of the love of Christ and the truth of Christ. Yeah, you can sit. I know. Ah, some of you guys so are easily, so easily more embarrassed than humble, I would say. And so I want to ask you this morning... For yourself, think about for yourself. Who has been that Stephanus to you? Who's poured out the truth of Christ on your life, poured out the love of Christ into your heart, and how might we honor and appreciate them even today? Is that it? That's all Paul has to say? Just want to recognize the leaders? Yeah, they're often underappreciated. But he has a word for all of us, too. Let's look at verse 19 as we wrap up. The churches of Asia send you greetings. Aquila and Prisca, together with the church in their house, send you hearty greetings in the Lord. All the brothers send you greetings. Greet one another with a holy kiss. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Now, if anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. Our Lord, come, and the grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen. Okay, quiz time. What is the key word that was repeated over and over in this passage? Greeting. Now, it says in ESV translation, greeting, but in the original language, it's actually a verb. It's greet that person. And so in verses 19 through 20, we see the churches throughout Asia Minor. These are the ones that Paul has established. All these churches like Ephesus, etc., They send their greeting. They greet the Corinthian church. Aquila and Priscilla, you know this couple. They're a married couple who actually came from Corinth. They helped Paul start the church there in Acts chapter 18. They trained Apollos. Remember, for those of you who, this is an Easter egg, Apollos was the one pastor the that there's all this controversy. People are trying to argue about following Paul or Apollos. Pr- Priscilla and Aquila trained Apollos as a pastor, and now they continue to plant churches with Paul, this amazing power couple in ministry. They greet you, Corinthians. And they, the house church that they're currently leading in the city of Ephesus, all of them know about you and they greet you. And in fact, all the Christians that are serving with Paul, his, his ministry team, they also greet you. Now, usually, you and I would read a passage like this and we would just gloss over it. This is just the ending. Here's Paul, like, you know, uh, just writing at the end of a letter, and, and this is a standard way of saying hello. It's just like if I were to sit here in my office, and I was shooting out an email to you, and then like uh, Pastor Daniel comes, knocks on my door, and is like, oh, what are you up to, J- Pastor Josh? Oh, I'm just sending out an email to uh, Susanna about worship stuff. And then she says, oh, tell Susanna that I said hello, okay? Pastor Daniel sends his greetings, right? So a lot of times, that's how we, we would look at this and just kind of gloss it over. But We know that this is intentional and there's greater significance to what Paul is saying here because right afterwards in verse 20, he says, likewise, and he uses the exact same word, this person greets you, these Christians greet you, other people greet you, likewise you are to greet one another with a holy kiss. Now, the emphasis here is on the greeting, not on the kissing. So some of you who are getting wrong ideas this morning, you need to understand that there's a difference between principles and methods. The kiss is cultural, but the greeting is the principle. All right? And where we want to land with this, that word is loaded with meaning. It doesn't just mean say hello from a distance, peace out. The word there means to draw someone close to you. That's what this word to greet means. So I want you to picture reread this passage that Paul is saying that all the churches in Asia Minor are drawing you close to them, drawing you to them. That, I, that all the believers, even Priscilla and Aquila, who used to pastor at your church but now are over here in Ephesus, they are drawing you close to them. It's a word that means to welcome, to embrace someone. It's not something that you do at a distance. And so as we think about that word, it means that what we're saying to you is just as all these Christians... In all these churches all over the the, uh, Asia Minor are greeting you and embracing you, Corinthians, as a brother, as their sister, as their family, even though they've heard about all your struggles from me. That means that they're embracing you equally, as equally valued, equally loved, equally forgiven in Christ. Follow their example, that despite in your church, Corinth, all the divisions and disputes and lawsuits in chapters 1, 3, and 6, likewise... Greet each other, love each other, value each other, welcome each other, embrace each other with a deep and holy affection as the family in Christ. And I want you to see that Paul isn't just instructing them with words. He shows them by example. You see, at this age and stage of his life, he's relying on his assistant, Sosthenes, who we met in chapter 1, verse 1. He's basically his secretary to write down most of this letter of what Paul is dictating. But here in verse 21, what does he say? I, Paul, personally pen this greeting. Same root word, my own embrace of you, my own drawing you close to me with my own shaky hands. That regardless of their insults and attacks against him, Paul personally expresses affection and embrace for them. And so the point here is that despite our differences and disagreements that happen in the body of Christ, that we are to embrace one another with the love of Christ, those who are living out the truth of Christ as a church family. And I want to put on that last tag, the, the qualifier, loving those who, embracing those who are living out the truth of Christ, because Paul says in the next couple of verses, it's not just anyone who claims to be a Christian. You're not just embracing anyone, and saying that you're my brother, um, you are a faithful follower, he sets a boundary. In verse 22, he talks about even if there are people in the church of Corinth who are long-term church members, maybe they're from the very beginning, and yet, if you're not trusting Jesus, obeying Jesus, loving Jesus, he says, living for Jesus, then you're not embraced, you're accursed. And the word there means to be something that is set apart to God, set apart for destruction, And so Paul concludes, it's this weird section, and so we're reading him, what he's saying, he concludes by suddenly calling upon Jesus, come Lord Jesus, to come again soon. Because what happens when Jesus comes again soon? When he returns in glory, he does so to separate those who are set apart for God and those who are set apart for judgment. Accursed. And he's kind of giving a last (laughs) pop-up, kind of one-two punch to the Corinthians to remind them, to take this seriously. And it reminds us, if we're people like the Corinthians, in their struggles, we're embracing the pleasures and the treasures of this world more than we embrace Jesus, then you are not going to be embraced as the family of Christ. You may not be really his family. If you say that you trust Jesus, but really you trust in your circumstances and your finances, your own priorities and your own plans, then you may not really be part of his family. You may not be embraced. In the family of Christ. Uh, You might be somebody who comes to church every Sunday and live as a Christian every Sunday, but Monday through Saturday you live a completely different life, indulging in the same kind of sexual immorality and idolatry that the Corinthians did. And Paul says, you may be a curse, you may not be part of the embraced family of Christ. You can attend every church picnic and every church program, but if you are consistently causing controversy and conflicts in the church family, then it, must mean, it might mean that you're not set apart for God, His goodness, and His purposes, that you're not set apart for salvation, but for destruction. So are we embraced or accursed? Now, wait a minute, Paul. That's awfully judgmental and a little cruel. Sounds a lot like Pharisees and how they would talk to Jesus and the people who followed Jesus. That's not what Paul is saying here, because it's easy, right? Like I said, to wield the truth of Christ like a weapon against people. What Paul is not saying, he's not rejecting people for not being good enough. We recognize that people are a work in progress, and so the church is to root for each other, pray for each other, support each other, that it's okay if somebody's struggling with their sin, but they're Chasing after Jesus, because the answer isn't to fix the behavior, it's to look towards Jesus and allow him to transform us, right? But I want you to think about, why does Jesus reject Pharisees? Somebody who would be that kind of condescending, judgmental person, like, oh, you're accursed, you are not living out the the right kind of life in Christ. Why does Jesus reject reject Pharisees? Because they often would say one thing, but live something else. What do we call that? Hypocrites. Hypocrites. And so what Paul is saying here is exactly that. You can't claim to love Jesus, to be part of his family, if you're consistently living in open rebellion against Jesus and against his word. Then you're not embraced, you're accursed. And in verse 23 and 24, as he wraps up, despite all the conflicts and criticisms that Paul has received from the Corinthians, Paul prays a blessing of Jesus' grace. That means his unearned favor and forgiveness and acceptance upon the Corinthians. And you see in that last verse that he's, you know, you, we know that you are cr- genuinely trying to seek out Jesus. For those of you who are like that, I'm expressing my own love, my own embrace for them in the love and truth of Christ. Now, he's the Apostle Paul. So, okay, he can love people who are hurtful or difficult for him. But Pastor Josh it's really hard for me to embrace some Christians in the church. I don't, you don't know how much I've been hurt or rejected by them. In 1996, uh, in Ann Arbor, Michigan, what happened was there was a Ku Klux Klan rally being held in the city of Ann Arbor. And what happened was hundreds of local people gathered to be kind of an anti-protest against that rally because they wanted to declare in Michigan, white supremacist organizations are not welcome here, not in our city. Now, at some point, uh, there was a man who was wearing a shirt emblazoned with a Confederate flag, prominently tattooed with an SS logo, for those of you who are World War II bus, a Nazi symbol, and he accidentally wandered into the midst of the wrong side, the protesters. And so they seized him, Knocked him to the ground and began viciously kicking him and beating him and smacking him with the poles of their signs. And as people began to shout, kill the Nazi! This moment was captured on film when an 18 year old high school student, Keisha Thomas, one of the protesters, threw herself on top of one of the very men that she had come to protest. Protecting him from the blows, actually taking some of the blows for him. And shouting back at the crowd, you cannot beat goodness into a person. Later she would reflect on that moment. Why did you do that? Well, someone had to step out of the pack and say, this is not right. I know what it's like to be hurt. And, I w- t- and those times when I wish that someone had stood up for me. Now Keisha, she never heard from that man again the man in that photo. But a few months later, a young man approached her, came up to her and said, excuse me, are you Keisha Thomas? Yes. Uh, I want to thank you. The man that you protected was my father. I'm sorry for the things that he says and does. What I find remarkable is the same thing that the photographer, the the very uh, student who, who took this picture, he found her actions so remarkable this is how he put it she put herself at physical risk (coughs) to protect someone who would not have done the same for her and and he asked who does that in this world and our answer is that jesus does That we have done great violence against him through our rebellion and sin. And yet Jesus sacrifices and suffers for us and dies for us and saves us when we would not and could not do that on our own and definitely not do it for him. And the point of this passage is that as we experience the truth of Christ and the love of Christ, the power of the gospel transforms us so that we can turn around and turn towards people in church and outside of church who are different from us, who are arrogant and annoying and boring, and speak the truth of Christ in the love of Christ, Ephesians 4 15, while embracing them as family in Christ, because the love of Christ for other people is what in 1 Corinthians 13? It's patient, it's kind, it is not arrogant, condescending, or self-seeking. And so Paul gives us one last challenge. Who do you need to embrace as a sister in Christ or as a brother in Christ, even if, like the Corinthians, they are still a work in progress? Now, what that doesn't mean is somebody who's hurt you. Uh, We don't ignore or excuse or accept sinfulness or abusiveness or toxic behavior from people. Sometimes loving people in Christ is setting boundaries, preventing people from hurting us in sinful ways. But if we're honest with ourselves, most of the time when we kind of give people a wide berth or avoid them, it's just because they're a little different, a little difficult for us. And let me challenge you one step further. Let's say that person did actually hurt you. But if they're repenting, if they're changing through the truth of Christ, in other words, somebody who is actively living out the truth of Christ, could you forgive and embrace them possibly as family in Christ? So we want to challenge you, as Paul wraps up, we need to be clear about what kind of church we are going to be, what kind of church Jesus has called us to be. And instead of judging people or the church by the eyes of the world, having our lives and our values and our eyes blurred by those values, we need to be clear about living out the truth of Jesus through the love of Jesus together. Because the gospel is the hope of the world, and that is what's going to make us distinct from the world to attract people to seek Christ in our holiness and unity together. And it's not by trying hard enough, not by serving God enough or giving enough and sacrificing enough. It's not by following the right people or avoiding the wrong ones, but by receiving the truth of Christ and the love of Christ. Then we discover that Jesus is wonderful, that he is amazing, that he is forgiving, that he is loving, that he is transforming and encouraging and empowering us to a life that the world cannot give. And so as we encourage and embrace one another as a church family, we don't ignore each other's sinfulness and selfishness. We tell the truth of Christ. And yet, as a gospel-shaped community, we know that it is both the truth of Christ and the grace of Christ, not condemnation, that transforms people and sets them free. As we close out this series, may we be the kind of church that vigorously protects and pursues and practices the truth of Christ with one another. And may we also be the kind of church that vigorously embraces each other so that people in church find healing, so that people outside of church find hope, that Jesus' word would be fulfilled from John chapter 13, verse 35, that all people would know that you are my disciples, my followers, by your love for one another. May God illuminate your identity in Christ so that you can see clearly your freedom from sin, the truth to live, and the family in Christ to love, and may we be set apart for the glory of God in holiness of his truth and in unity of his love. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we give thanks for the deep love of Christ and the truth of Christ that transforms us. Now the truth is we were sinful and we owe a debt. But the love of Christ is that he paid the price. He covers us with righteousness. He makes us whole and he can make us live more and more like Jesus. So we ask that you would help us to be that kind of church towards one another. We know it in our heads, but it's so hard to live out with our hands. And so, God, we receive from you your goodness and grace. And we remember the words of Paul. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. And my love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen.